Hey, Mama. I know getting meals on the table for your family can feel tough, especially finding weeknight-friendly meals that everyone in the family will love. There's a good chance it's why you're here, at least I hope so. Helping moms take the stress out of feeding their family is my biggest passion. It's why I share with you here, and it's why I created the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. If you've ever wished this podcast came with a weekly done-for-you dinner plan with a shopping list and meal prep tips, or maybe a recipe library with over 200 family-friendly recipes, cooking tips, how-tos, and hacks, well, it does, and it's all in the Healthy Mama Cooking Club over on Patreon. Starting at just $3 a month for access to our 200-plus recipe vault with printable PDF recipes, or $5 a month for weekly done-for-you dinner plans, plus the recipe vault and bonus podcasts every month, the Healthy Mama Cooking Club is the dinnertime solution you're looking for. Head to patreon.com slash healthymamachris or click the link in the show notes to try it out for a week free and join over 130 other busy mamas making weeknight meals work with the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. I can't wait to see you in there. All right, let's get on with the episode. Women come to fertility awareness for birth control, for pregnancy, like the very practical stuff. But what happens is this incredible kind of awakening to this very real connection between our cycles and our body and this empowerment of like, wow, I actually have a lot more control over my health and my fertility than I ever thought I did. No one ever told me that I could change my cycle like this. Living a healthy, balanced life is no small feat, especially when you're a mom. With meals to cook, laundry to load, work to do, and humans to raise, it can be easy to feel like we're in an on-again, off-again relationship with healthy living. But it doesn't have to feel this way. I believe living a healthy life has become way too complicated. What we need isn't a new plan or program telling us what to eat or how to live. We need simple, uncomplicated routines and information that's going to help us live our best, most beautiful life without rules and restrictions. Join me, Kristen Dofniak, holistic health coach, certified intuitive eating counselor, and mama of two for weekly conversations on what it means to live a healthy, balanced life, uncomplicate eating, and simplify in every area of mom life. Hey friends, welcome back to the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. Kristen here, holistic health coach and your host of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. And man, do I have an awesome interview for you today. I'm so excited to share with you. Way back in the early summer when I did a call out for questions, I got so many responses from you wanting more information on women's health in every area. And so we've been talking over the last few episodes all about different areas of women's health when it comes to pregnancy, fertility, postpartum, and something that has made a really huge impact in my life in learning about my own body and my own cycle cycles, especially when I decided to go off of hormonal birth control, is the fertility awareness method. You may or may not be familiar with the fertility awareness method, and my guest today is going to explain to you what it is all about, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions around the fertility awareness method as something that is either preventing pregnancy or helping us get pregnant because it can do both, and it also really just truly helps us become more aware and connected to our bodies 
bodies and our cycles as females. So I was so excited when Lisa Hendrickson Jack told me that she would come on the podcast and share with me all about the fertility awareness method and her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, and really talk to you about why our cycles are so important as women and how really undervalued I think they are in the medical community, but how they truly are the fifth vital sign for us as females for our overall health and wellness. So whether you are looking to start a family, have another baby, or prevent pregnancy, or just become more knowledgeable about your body as a female, this episode is going to be so enlightening for you. Lisa is incredible, so passionate, and I'm so excited to share our conversation with you. So for those of you who don't already know Lisa, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack talks about vaginas a lot. She's a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle cycle optimization. That's a mouthful, but so cool. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect with their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. With well over a million downloads, Fertility Friday is the number one source for information about fertility awareness and menstrual cycle health, connecting women around the world with their cycles and their fertility, something our education systems have consistently failed to do. When she's not researching, writing, or interviewing health professionals, you'll find her spending time with her husband and her two sons. To learn more about her, visit fertilityfriday.com. Okay, friends, I know if you're at all interested in your female cycle, you are going to love this conversation with Lisa. So let's dig in. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We are going to have such a great conversation. I already know it. I love, though, to just start with a little icebreaker just to start things off. So what do you drink first thing in the morning when you wake up? That is a good question. So I I won't give one answer because sometimes it can fluctuate. But so sometimes I'll do like just water with lemon. Um, I've actually been experimenting with water, lemon, and a little bit of baking soda, which is interesting because this mm-hmm. is up. Um, and then I usually have tea. So my current fave is turmeric tea and I make it with fresh cream and like Mm. extra turmeric. Um, And I sweeten it with a little bit of stevia. Like I have like a turmeric chai. So it's like, it's like way too big of an answer for such a short question, but that is actually what I have first thing in the morning. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love that so much. I love this question because I mean, every so often someone's just like water, but most of the time people have such interesting answers. So I love that so much. And I love turmeric tea, but I don't, I don't do it first thing in the morning. I am a coffee girl. I've switched to half calf for my hormones. I'm working on it. (laughs) Um, um, Yes. Baby steps for sure. (laughs) So I am sure many of my listeners are already familiar with you because we are the Healthy Balanced Mama podcast. They're mostly moms. Many of them are moms and the majority of them are women. I know I have a couple male listeners, but I'm sure the women listening um, might be familiar with your work already. But I would love if you can just share briefly with my listeners who are new to you what you're passionate about bringing to the world. Well, that's a great question. Um, 
what I'm passionate about bringing to the world. Let me see how I can sum it up. Um, basically, the work that I do, it's filling a really important gap that many of us don't even realize is there. Because the vast majority of women are taught nothing about their fertility and their menstrual cycles and how they work. And so this has a huge impact on our lives because it impacts the choices that we make for birth control if we're not aware that uh, of how our menstrual cycle works and that we're not fertile every single day, then that impacts the choices that we believe are available to us and ultimately make for how we control our, you know, birth, <laughs> if you want to uh, refer to it that way. But um, the title of my book, The Fifth Vital Sign, is basically my argument that the menstrual cycle, and it's not my argument, like I'm the only one saying this, this is a, grow, a growing number of professionals in the field are recognizing that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. And so we are able to gain important information about our health by paying attention to our menstrual cycle. And there is a such thing as normal and healthy. And if we understand what that is, and understand that if we are reproductive age women, that our cycles are supposed to be a certain way. Uh, and if they're not, it means that there's a health issue. That is basically what I'm passionate about bringing. So, you know, I put these things together, understanding how our menstrual cycle works, understanding how that relates to our fertility, and understanding how the menstrual cycle is central really to um, having optimal health as, as women. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. And, you know, I've talked a little bit about my own journey when it comes to hormones and hormone balance and learning about my own cycle um, in some previous episodes, not in, not in a huge amount of depth, but I know that growing up, like I think many other women, I was very much taught that your menstrual cycle was something that you don't really talk about, that it was just this really uncomfortable part of being a woman. And it's so funny, actually. So I have a six and a half year old daughter. And I want to be very open with her about her own cycle. So so it isn't something that is weird or scary or something that she's not aware about. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned my cycle starting and I was like, oh, mommy's got to go. And I, I told her, I had just mentioned it and she was like, you're what? And I was like, oh, I just, I'd been mentioning it for what I thought was her whole life. And I'm like, oh, Okay. I guess now is the time to share with her a little bit more. And it was so interesting because I know she's heard me say things here or there. Um, but I explained it to her. And I'm like, maybe some people might think six and a half is too young to know about that. But I was like, it's her body. She's a woman. It's, you know, she's going to experience this one day. And, you know, she's already experiencing changes as a woman now. But, you know, when she really, when she grows up and she was like, oh, that's interesting. She had a couple questions and then she moved on. I'm sure she'll have more questions as she gets older. So I really love that you are bringing more awareness to this subject and then also to the fact that it is such an important part of being a woman. And it is, I think, so often just pushed under the rug as, oh, it's this thing that we don't want to talk about, but it is so important. So one of the things that you talk about a ton is teaching about fertility awareness, right? So I kind of want to start by digging in there. That's how I first discovered you through your podcast. You're talking about the fertility awareness method. Um, and so what is kind of your own story with the fertility awareness method and how you sort of got into the work that you're doing now? Yeah. Um, 
So for me, I discovered fertility awareness at a rel- relatively young age. I was about 18 or 19. And so, you know, the backstory is that I was put on the pill probably within a year or two-ish of, of my first period. Uh, and I mean, I actively sought that out because I had really heavy and extremely painful periods from the beginning. So primary dysmenorrhea was my situation. And so at that age, I was also... <laughs> I was ballet dancer, like leotards and heavy periods, just not a good thing. Um, So I was a ballet dancer. I did all kinds of sports like track and all the things. And so I was really active and I, you know, I didn't know of any natural ways to deal with this, obviously. Like, and uh, so I knew that if I asked to go on the pill, my pill periods, which I didn't know was a thing would be lighter. So my experience was that my doctor put me on the pill. I was like, I have heavy and painful and the man was already writing the prescription. <laughs> so like I didn't even finish my sentence. He's like, um, so my experience though was it was magic, right? It's magical. All of a sudden my periods were, you know, 28 days uh, and I use air quotes for periods and they were lighter. So it was magical, less painful or not painful at all. And so I actually thought it was fixed. <laughs> so I would kind of come off of them sometimes uh, you know, cause I wasn't using it for birth control at that time. It was strictly for like this other purpose. And then when I would get my actual period, it would be like, it felt like it was like worse than it was before. So my actual period would be like brutal. And so at a young age, I already had a sense that whatever it was doing, it wasn't like, I didn't have words for it. Like I do now, but I knew that it wasn't the same thing. <laughs> Um, and I find even that to be interesting because the vast majority of women don't know that it's not the same thing. So, um, you know, the periods, if you want to call it that on the pill are not the same thing as a true period. It's a withdrawal bleed because you have artificial hormones and then you stop them for a couple of days and that causes your body to have this response. So you do bleed, but it's not the same thing as your period. So fast forward to age 18, like 19, you know, first couple of years of university, I actually did need birth control because I entered into my first kind of major relationship. And so I was looking for birth control. And so my thought process went, because also I was on the pill for a while without needing birth control. I wouldn't take it at the same time. I had read the insert. I was already like, okay, if I'm on the pill, I'm always going to use condoms 100% of the time so that I'm not freaking out if I ever take it two hours later or whatever. And so then I thought, well, if I'm always going to use condoms, then I should just come off the pill because I actually was concerned about my general health. I, somewhere in, inside, I didn't think it was normal for my periods to be so horrific. So I kind of, and I, I had witnessed a few members of my family have difficulty conceiving and caring, and I didn't want a baby, just let's be clear, at that age. But I felt like I don't want to mess things up. Like this was just what's going on in my head at this, this time. And so right around that time, like divine intervention, I discovered fertility awareness. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, you're not fertile every day. There's cervical fluids you can monitor, your cervical position, your temperature. You can identify when you're fertile, when you're not. And there's actually a part of your cycle that you can have unprotected sex and not get pregnant. And I was like, mind blown. And it was exactly what I needed at the time. So literally for me, it was like divine intervention. It just all fell into place at the right time. And so that was my solution. It was like, okay, so then I don't have to be on birth control. And I actually have two methods because I can figure this fertility awareness stuff out. So that's how I first discovered it. Um, that was my first big revelation. And then um, later on, when I was charting happily, um, my cycles were not totally normal. My average cycle was like 38 days. And I had read Taking Charge of Your Fertility. 
I was like, you know, post high school feminist phase. So I remember thinking like, well, every one cycle doesn't have to be 28 days. That's a myth because it's true that it's a myth. But I remember thinking like, it's totally fine. Your cycles can be however long they need to. (laughs) Fortunately, I was surrounded by a group of women who knew a lot more than I did. And so one of my charting instructors looked at my chart and she's like, "Uh, yeah, Lisa, your cycles are way too long. Your temperatures are way too low. I think you should get your thyroid checked. And it turned out that I had um, an underactive thyroid. And I didn't have overt symptoms that I was aware of. Literally the only symptom, if you want to call it that, was my cycle, my chart. So very early on in my journey, it was brought to my attention that this is way more than birth control. If someone can look at my chart and identify certain health issues, I was my mind again was blown. So I quickly, you know, I was part of a group of women who um, were, were teaching on campus. I started attending and then I took a class with a group of women and we started teaching. And I was doing this at the grassroots level, basically in my 20s. Uh, it was when I had my first son that I kind of, you know, pulled my head out of the sand and looked around and realized, you know what, I've been taking this information for granted for over a decade here. Um, And obviously, women still don't know about it. So I felt compelled to kind of put it out there on a bigger scale. And it turns out women want to know. So that brings us to where we are now. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. You just dropped a huge you know, I don't want to use the B word because I feel like I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble with iTunes if I do. But, you know, because, oh my gosh, you found out about your thyroid condition just based on your cycle, which I think is so cool and so crazy. And, you know, someone who has been very much, and I, I, I told you before we, before we hopped on that, you know, I've, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. I've listened to your podcast for a number of years. My first introduction into the fertility awareness method was also taking charge of your fertility, which was recommended to me by um, a nutritionist that I was working for at the time when I was also wanting to get off of birth control because I was having some digestive issues. And um, my practitioner was like, maybe you want to get off of this and sort of see where your baseline's at. And lo and behold, my cycle was a complete wreck. And it wasn't until, and they were, and my cycles were super, super long, really erratic in terms of flow. And some months were three days, some months were nine days. And that's how it had been when I was an early teenager. And I just thought that it was something that I would grow out of. And then I went on the pill and then, oh, oh, everything's fixed. Exactly like you said. And that was sort of my own story too, where I started learning that how much our cycles can really tell us about our health. It wasn't actually until about five years after I started tracking my own cycles that I was diagnosed with PCOS. Five years of tracking my cycles and noticing these irregularities. There was a pregnancy in there too. I had my I had my oldest daughter in between that time as well. So trying to get things back into balance. And then eventually it was like something's off. And when I finally went through three different doctors who were like, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Why don't you just go on birth control? You know, again, of course, why that's just gonna fix everything, right? And it was like, no, you have PCOS, but you can do something about this other than just going back on the pill. So my whole point with sharing my own story there is I love that you shared that point about it is so much more than just tracking our cycles for preventing or getting pregnant. So I wonder if you can just go into just maybe a couple of the things that um, learning about our cycles, and we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to track our cycles and kind of those signs. Um, But 
the importance of learning about our cycles and what it can tell us about our overall health. So you mentioned thyroid. So what other things can tracking our cycles and learning more about our cycles tell us about our body and our overall health? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. You mentioned your own situation with PCOS. I did want to touch on something because I feel like um, you mentioned and I mentioned that, you know, we had these cycles that were not normal, although none of us are given a definition of what is. And then in both instances, the pill was the fix. And so I think that um, in order to understand how charting your cycles and becoming aware of your cycles and what what all of it means can relate to overall health, kind of have to understand what the pill does and doesn't do in the body. So there's a lot of myths about the pill. And it it comes from our medical system. So our medical system is an allopathic medical model. And the best phrase to describe it would be like a pill for every ill. So it's the idea that you go to your doctor with a symptom, and then you get medication that gets rid of the symptom, and that's healthcare. And so I think that what, to start this conversation, you kind of have to have an understanding that there's a difference between getting rid of a symptom and actually understanding why you get the symptom and fixing that so that the symptom goes away. And so that's basically the difference between like allopathic medicine and functional medicine, meaning that functional medicine is trying to look at the root cause. If I have really painful periods, looking at the root cause would be like, well, why are your periods painful? And so looking at inflammation, looking at, you know, possibly endometriosis or other issues that could cause this basically like pelvic inflammatory slash painful situation and then addressing those conditions. So looking at the body, like the body is actually not broken and the symptoms are a sign that there's an imbalance and we have to sort that out and then the body will go back into balance. So that's like a different way of looking at it versus our medical model is kind of like, yeah, periods are just painful. Yeah. Cycles are just irregular. We don't care why. And the solution is the pill. Um, so the pill, for example, um, does not regulate the cycle. What it does is it actually suppresses ovulation so that you're no longer ovulating. <laughs> um, so it gets rid of your cycle altogether. So you're not actually cycling on it. And so when you get rid of the cycle, then the symptom, like the irregular cycle or the painful periods, often goes away because you're not actually having a cycle. But Lisa, I bleed every 28 days. I have to be having a cycle. Well, an interesting story I'll tell you is that like the beta version of the pill. So back in the late 1950s, when they did the test before they brought, brought out the first pill in 1960, the first pill didn't have a pill bleed. The first pill, they just gave the women the drugs continuously. So what happened was you had a group of women and this is in like the late fifties when there had never been a pill. So the only time women stopped menstruating was when they were pregnant, lactating, or actually like ill. And so these women then stopped menstruating and they all thought they were pregnant. And the doctors were like, you're not pregnant. And they were like, yes, I am. And (laughs) the doctors couldn't convince them. And finally, when they realized they weren't pregnant, that it was the drug, the women were actually like devastated because they actually thought they were pregnant. So the doctors were like, oh, okay, so let's add in a withdrawal bleed. That was what prompted them to create this fake 28-day cycle where you take the pills for like whatever, 21, 24 days, and then you get your sugar pills and then you get a bleed. And so just so that everyone knows the background of history, 
of the pill, I feel like we, we can start the conversation with that foundation because I rarely meet women who haven't been told that the pill regulates the cycle, that it makes your body think it's pregnant, that it's like a natural state, that it fixes a regular cycle, that like all of that stuff is not an accurate description of what it actually does. So it suppresses the real cycle. So you, you're not cycling, you have no cycle. And instead, um, they, you know, created this bleed. I call it a feature <laughs> of the, the pill. And now that we've had 60 years of the pill, because we're in 2020 now, is it 60? Is it, did I do my math right? Yeah. So 60 years of the pill since 1960, we are so used to this idea that now they've fully come out and said that the withdrawal bleed is not necessary. You, you know, they've come out with brands like season now because technically there was no medical reason that they did it. They literally just did it. So the women would think it was like their cycle. So um, when we go back to, okay, how is the menstrual cycle like a vital sign and how can charting help us understand? So when you're charting, you're not suppressing your cycle. So in your case, for example, you had irregular cycles. So in order to understand that, we have to know what's normal. So a normal cycle ranges from about 24 to 35 days. 35 days is getting to that long end of normal. Um, and so when you regularly have cycles that are longer than 35 days or you have fewer than eight or nine cycles a year, that is a sign of PCOS in some cases, but basically it's outside of the realm of normal. And if your cycle is consistently outside of the realm of normal, there's a reason for it. It means that your ovulation is delayed. Um, PCOS is associated with inflammation. It's associated with uh, glucose intolerance um, and insulin resistance. And women who have PCOS, um, it's, it's really like a metabolic condition that is disrupting ovulation because of the inflammation it's causing and the hormone disruption that happens as a result. Women who have PCOS have a you know, 50% greater chance of developing diabetes in their lifetime. So if we actually looked at the cycle disruption as a sign of this deeper metabolic issue that was going on, and we actually looked to address it and understand it and naturally kind of correct it, and that can be done. It's not always like so super simple, but it can be done with a combination of diet and lifestyle. If you have glucose intolerance, then adjusting your macronutrient ratio for many women is very helpful. Um, there's also certain natural medications or actual medications. I'm not saying one or the other. I'm just stating information that can sensitize your body to insulin. And many women find that by doing a combination of these things, even if it's within the natural realm of dietary changes and insulin sensitizing things or correcting nutrient deficiencies that are very common with PCOS, like vitamin D, magnesium, like things like that. Um, many women find that their cycles start to normalize and they start to ovulate more regularly. And by doing those things, you are then addressing the underlying issue and reducing the lifetime risk of something like diabetes, because you're actually understanding that this is not just my cycles are weird. This is, I live in a, a like I'm a female, I live in a female body. And when you're a woman of reproductive age, you have a menstrual cycle. You are not a car. I use the example, the analogy of like car and air conditioning. Like you can get a car with or without air conditioning and the engine runs the same. Like it doesn't matter, but you cannot be in like a biologically female body and like just of reproductive age and just stop menstruating and expect that it has no consequence. It's all connected. So I'm going to pause because I know I've been talking for a while, but 
that is essentially the fundamental message, which is that we have to first understand how our body works. And when you're in a female body um, and you have a menstrual cycle, it's not separate. And that's why like when you try to suppress it, all these things go wrong. Like that's why there's so many different side effects associated with the pill and all that kind of stuff. Cause it's, it's not a separate like add on feature that we come with a menstrual cycle <laughs> for a reason. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that story about the pill. I had no idea that that was just sort of an, you know, quote unquote add on feature and it makes so much sense. Right. You know, and even now, if my cycle is not on time, which now that I've balanced my hormones, it is um, most of the time, which is great and fabulous. But even if my cycle now is a little bit late, then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. And I pretty much 100% know that I'm not pregnant. We've chosen some birth control methods that are our a birth control method that's a little bit more permanent at this point in time. So I know, but I'm still like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. I tell my husband, my husband's like, I hope you're not pregnant. Or how did you get pregnant then? <laughs> so I can imagine the panic that these women felt having, you know, you know, 60 years ago, this being something that they just knew as normal. And I almost think now we have come to a point where what is normal is to be on the pill and to have that sort of, you know, I've heard it called kind of a breakthrough bleed, um, to have that, you know, bleed that isn't actually your actual cycle, but thinking that it is because that's what the medical model tells us. So I love that by going back to learning more about our bodies, to being able to, you know, have that connection with our bodies. I talk a lot about intuitive eating and tuning into your own intuition when it comes to food. Um, but you know that also includes you know tuning into the features of our body as a woman, right? So I think it's so powerful to have this conversation about how important our cycle is to our overall health as a woman. And I love that you mentioned that you know if we are living in a female body as women of reproductive age, this is something that is a part of us and it's important and it's definitely not it's definitely not um, talked about enough or at least kind of in the way that that you're sharing and how important it is and how much it can be a signal for for other health conditions and just our overall health so I'm wondering if you can go into so we've we've kind of talked about a few different things. We've talked about um, cycling and tracking your cycle and things that women might not have ever heard of. So can you just kind of briefly go into what is the fertility awareness method? How would a woman kind of go about other than reading your book, which they absolutely should. So how would a woman start with this and start with tracking her cycle and, and how does that kind of work? Well, so fertility awareness, um, I, I look at it kind of like there's two levels of, or like maybe three levels, but two levels of fertility awareness. So one is actually just having the understanding of how everything works. And then the second level would be actually like choosing to use it for a purpose. So, you know, I believe that every woman has the right to, and really every human, to understand how the menstrual cycle works. So the foundation of fertility awareness is basically uncovering the biology, the things that are happening that we just were never told about. So I think one of the easiest ways for me to explain it is to start by saying that, you know, contrary to what we're taught, we are not fertile every day of our cycles. That's the first thing. Men are actually fertile every day because they make sperm all the time. 
So once a man goes through puberty and he starts, you know, producing his testosterone and all of that good stuff, he makes sperm every day. And so once he goes through puberty, then it's just like sperm all the time. But women, we have a menstrual cycle. And so if I take you through the menstrual cycle, the first day of the menstrual cycle is the first day of your period. So I say it's the first day of your true flow when you need to like do something about it because you're actually flowing. Once you finish your menstrual cycle, that's usually, you know, an average three to seven days, um, then you go into the first half of your cycle. So the pre-ovulatory phase. So we can kind of divide the cycle into two main phases. So from a scientific perspective, there are only six days of the cycle where pregnancy is possible because you produce what's called cervical fluid as you approach ovulation. Um, Now, the vagina is acidic. It's a very hostile environment to sperm. And outside of your short window of fertility, the sperm actually can't survive like they die. And so when you are approaching ovulation, now anyone who's listening, if you've ever uh, notice that there's certain days of your cycle, like when you're cycling naturally, not when you're on the pill or anything, but when you're cycling naturally, if there's a certain part of your cycle where you feel wetter, you know, in your underwear, you notice that there's lotiony um, fluid, or you notice that you have clear stretchy fluid. If you've ever gone to the bathroom and wiped, and it's actually super slippery, like I joke that it's like your hand hits the back of the toilet, or that you have to wipe a bunch of times because it's like, what is <laughs> what's all this stuff? Or if you've ever ended up at your doctor's office, even regularly, because you thought you had an infection because you just have this air quotes discharge. So all of those experiences, so the lotiony uh, white kind of fluid or the clear stretchy kind of this like raw egg whites or like that super wet lubricative sensation, that is how cervical mucus shows up. We produce cervical mucus in response to this hor- these hormonal changes that happen as we approach ovulation. So you have your period. And then when your period is done, we typically have a couple of days, which I would refer to as dry days. So that's before you start to see any cervical fluid. And then you would actually see the cervical fluid as you approach ovulation. So in a typical normal cycle that's falling within the 24 to 35 day range, you would typically have like a patch of mucus anywhere from two to seven days that would lead to ovulation. And then you would ovulate. Hooray. (laughs) And so ovulation happens on one day of the cycle. And then after you ovulate, you produce a different hormone, you produce progesterone, and that actually suppresses further ovulation, dries up your cervical fluid, and you are completely infertile for the rest of the cycle. Once ovulation has happened, the egg is dead and gone, there is no babies at all, period. Scientific thing. Um, So that's kind of like the cycle 101 kind of information. And so what it boils down to is that's just the knowledge and the knowing of your body. Now, if you want to use this information, women can choose to use that information to get pregnant. And many of the women listening to your podcast have, because many women discover when they, it's like when they start trying to have a baby, it's a huge revelation that, wow, I just thought I would have sex whenever. And wow, only to find out that there's actually a certain time when I have to have sex (laughs) in order to get pregnant. Um, So women use this knowledge to conceive because if you're timing it right, then at least you're getting it. Like if you don't get the timing right, there's no chance. So you may as well try to get the timing right. Um, And then other women choose to use this information to avoid pregnancy because if you can identify the, the fertile window, then you can avoid unprotected sex during that time. Um, and then you won't get pregnant. So when you're using it for birth control, there are rules. So your question around like, how do you learn about it? Well, um, 
the best suggestion for how to start learning about it is to grab a copy of Taking Charge of Your Fertility, grab a copy of my book, because it's something that you have to learn. Um, so, you know, starting off with some resources, if you're serious about learning, um, of course, my podcast is a great free resource a lot of people take advantage of. Um, and there's now, you know, lots of groups of women who say Facebook groups and things like that, where you can actually go and learn. And of course, for women who are really serious about it, it's a, it's a good idea to be, to take a class from a certified instructor who can actually lead you through a specific method of charting because there's lots of different ways to do it. And so that's kind of like the overview. But I suppose the one point I'd want to just end with is that, you know, a lot of us have heard about fertility awareness-based methods um, in, in the context of like, oh, it's like the rhythm method. Like you're counting your the days of when ovulation is happening and somehow calculating when you're fertile. So the rhythm method is a real method and it is based on an actual calendar. So you, you know, have a certain number of cycles and you calculate the average of, you know, ovulation. And, and so, but it's not effective because we're not, women are not robots. So our cycles aren't always the same. Modern fertility awareness-based methods are based on daily observation. So you're actually observing your fertile signs each day. So the fertile signs are your cervical fluid, as we talked about. Cervical position is an optional sign. Um, so your, the position of your cervix, the base of your uterus actually changes throughout your cycle. And also basal body temperature. So modern fertility awareness-based methods use a combination of those main signs and you monitor them each day. So each day you're identifying if you're fertile or not based on what you saw. And when you're using modern fertility awareness-based methods, for example, um, like the symptothermal using the three signs, that it has been shown to be up to 99.4% effective when used correctly. So I think it's helpful for people to know what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a method of tracking that is based on monitoring your biomarkers, essentially, that is fully scientific and has been studied and published research in peer review journals showing that it, when used correctly, is as effective as hormonal birth control. For a lot of women, it's like, what do you mean? How can I be a grown woman? And no one ever told me about this. And so there's a lot of emotions that come when you kind of realize, oh, wait, this is a real thing. This is legit. This is an actual option. Every woman isn't going to choose it, but shouldn't we know about it? Yes. Oh my gosh. And I was telling you before we got on live that I remember telling my husband about learning about the fertility awareness method and after going off of birth control, going and deciding to go off of birth control and him doing okay and him going, okay, well now what? Because we weren't at the point where we wanted to have a baby and it, explaining it to him and him going, okay, but how effective is that? And I'm explaining to him. And so he's asking more details. He's very science-minded as well. He's got a degree in exercise science. So, and so he's taken some, you know, anatomy, physiology classes, all of that. And I'm explaining to him things like cervical mucus. And he's like, his eyes are super wide and he's like, okay, so you're going to track that. And I'm like, well, it's not just that, right? There is, there's tracking the cervical mucus, there's tracking the different days of my cycle and there's tracking my, my body temperature. And he's like, okay. And I had him read a couple things and he got on board with me eventually. Um, but I think as he started seeing it be something that was effective for us, and then, you know, it, then it, he started to come around to it a little bit more, but I've had so many conversations with friends about, you know, utilizing this as our, our main form of, you know, really my, my form of tracking my cycle and then our really our main form of birth control for a number of years up until very recently, we're talking like a year, um, 
that, you know, it, it really was incredibly effective when we were doing it in the right way. And what's so funny is when I was planning on becoming pregnant, we had decided to start trying with my, my oldest daughter. We were using this method and I remember it being around the time in my cycle where I, I would be ovulating. And I, we were like in the early stages of deciding that we wanted to start trying with my daughter and knowing at this point that I had been told I had an eating disorder in high school and I had been told that it was probably going to be really difficult for me to get pregnant. And so I didn't expect to get pregnant. You know, I expected it to take quite some time. And then using, using this method, I knew that I was probably ovulating that day or, or around that day. And uh, lo and behold, before we had officially started trying, we got pregnant with my oldest daughter. And it was sort of like, I told my husband, I was like, this could be a thing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I was pregnant. And so it's pretty incredible that, and then, you know, after that, it was four years until I had my second daughter. So it was definitely something that, you know, learning about my body, not only was it incredible to learn about my body, but to also be like, oh my gosh, this is actually working. And of course, if we had gotten pregnant in between, that would have been fine. We were, you know, married and happy and it would have been good. Um, But it was, it's so fascinating to learn, especially how effective it is. Because I've definitely had conversations with friends where they're like, um, you know, isn't that the same thing as we hear about the rhythm method. And I remember learning in high school health class, the very little that we did learn about it, don't do the rhythm method because it's not effective. And so this sounds similar to that, but it's, it's very different when you're, when you're really in tune with your body. Well, and can I just take on to something that you said? Because I mean, it made me think, because I've had so many, obviously, conversations about this over the last like two decades. So I think it's, it's really interesting, just that idea. Like I've, so many women, because we're, because of the way that we're taught about our bodies or like rather not taught, um, it's, it's, it's programming basically. Like we're being programmed with misinformation. And so, and it works like in the sense that it's really hard to, to leave behind some of the information we were taught. So even for women who like buy the books and read them, chart their cycles, use the method, like they're using the method correctly. So when I say using the method co- correctly, I mean a woman who has taken the time to learn it, she identifies her fertile window and she does not have unprotected sex. So there's no ejaculation inside. I'm being graphic, but this is what it, we're actually talking about. Um, so there's no ejaculation inside during her fertile window, but she will have ejaculation, like so full on sex outside of that window. So even though you read it and you understand theoretically, like in your case, you understand that it works you still don't believe it. People start to think that they're infertile. They start to think there's something wrong, especially if they talk to friends who are like, it doesn't work. If they talk to their doctor and they slip that they've been using fertility, it's like, what, what's your birth control method fertility? And you're not pregnant yet. And so like, I've literally had people who start to think that there's something wrong with it, just because they're, because I'm like, well, you, you can see where I'm going with this, right? It's kind of tongue in cheek. The method works, but because of the programming, you think, oh my gosh. I should be pregnant by now. And then the moment, like, so then what happens is you have unprotected sex. Like you let it slip. It, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, in your case, it was consciously. Some women do this unconsciously because they just think they're infertile. So they'll see some mucus and be like, oh, it's not that much. And I'm probably infertile anyway. Because <laughs> I've been using this method for three years and I haven't got pregnant. Boom, pregnant. <gasps> oh, it does work. 
Yes, I'm laughing over here. I was muted for a second because there's a sweet little fly buzzing around my head over here. <laughs> yeah, no, it is it is crazy. And looking back to looking back on, you know, years of, you know, having a very irregular cycle and then starting to learn what my cycle actually looked like for me and where my ovulation was or is um, and and versus where somebody else's might be or where you might estimate with something like the rhythm method. It makes sense to me now that I was like, I got to know my body. I got to know my body's signs. I got to know. But yes, it was, it was definitely one of those surprising things. And I think, yeah, we do. We are programmed to think that something like this isn't supposed to work. So I love that. You are bringing light to how important it is and the fact that it, this does work when we're doing it, um, you know, when we're doing it in, in a very intentional way, right? And, you know, as effective when we're doing it in that really intentional way as hormonal birth control, which is so, so great. Because I know for me, you know, I after I realized how many symptoms, I was having quite a few symptoms on hormonal birth control. Once I realized, once they went away, and even though my cycle was very irregular in the beginning, it took a couple of years for it to even back out. I'm like, why would I ever want to go back on that again? It made me feel horrible. <laughs> so it's great to have that, that other option. So I'm curious, and something that I just touched on, and I would like you to answer as the expert, does this work for a woman who doesn't have a regular period or a woman who doesn't have, you know, or who doesn't have a regular cycle? And can this help her achieve a regular cycle? That's a really great question and an important one. Um, because the programming is so deep that even though, like, even for, like I said, because this is what I do, right? I teach women all the time, like every day and well, every week, at least I'm teaching at least one, one client or one class. And so even though, you know, I'll teach this and I'll say, okay, so this is how the cycle works. It's not about predicting when you're going to ovulate because ovulation for the record is it fluctuates. Even in women with very quote regular cycles, ovulation is not happening on day 14 all the time. That's, and m many women never have or rarely have ovulation on actually day 14. So what that means is that even if you have really regular cycles, the ovulation shifts a little bit because we're human, we're alive, <laughs> we're not robots. Um, so the first half of the cycle is quite variable. Um, it's related to stress. Obviously, it's related to different health conditions as we spoke about. So for women that have irregular cycles, um, fertility awareness is just as effective. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't specific challenges. So let me explain why it's just as effective. So with modern fertility awareness-based methods, it's not about predicting when ovulation is going to happen. So you're not ever taking action based on what happened in a previous cycle. You only take action based on what you literally see like today. So when I'm teaching my clients, so the method that I use falls under the umbrella of the symptothermal method. So as I described, cervical mucus, basal body temperature, and cervical position are the three main signs that we're looking at. So the only part of your cycle where pregnancy is possible is the first half, the pre-ovulatory phase. That's the only part. After ovulation, there's no egg. There's no baby when there's no egg. So we have to then police the first half of the cycle. So basically, the method that I teach, and I think that's an important point as well, there are multiple fertility awareness-based methods. There's the Billings method. There's the Justice method. There's the Cretan method. There's the Femme method. There's Symptopro. Like, I'm not even listing them all. There's a lot of different methods. And then there's apps. There's, you know, all these different ways to do this. 
So when you're serious about using fertility awareness as birth control, like the first step is to educate yourself and then select a method that is going to make the most sense for you. So, you know, the, the symptothermal method using like the, the signs plus the temperature, uh, over the years, I found that to be extremely, extremely effective for the vast majority of women who want to do this. Um, because you have, it's not just, you're relying on one sign. You've got multiple signs to back up. Okay. So the way this works and the reason it can be effective or the reason it is effective uh, and I should say can be effective for women who regardless of how regular their cycles are is because in that pre-ovulatory phase you are checking your signs so you check your signs on Monday if you see mucus it's not so simple but to just put it into simple terms for right now you're fertile when you see mucus because it's mucus where the sperm um can survive for up to five days. So you're basically identifying when you're fertile based on what you actually see, like today. And with that in mind, if you have an irregular cycle, you are still basing it on what you saw today. Now the challenge for women who have really long cycles, so for example, PCOS, uh, and if your cycle is like 45 days or 50 days or something like that, is that many times you will, because your ovulation is delayed, like this is the other thing, when you have a really long cycle, it means that ovulation is delayed. The longer the cycle, the longer it took you to ovulate. So if your cycle's healthy and you're ovulating somewhere between day 10 and 23, that's pretty easy to sort out because you just monitor your signs each day. Uh, but when you start to see cervical fluid, it's typically moving into ovulation and you ovulate and that's it. When you have a long cycle, sometimes you'll see mucus and then you don't ovulate because ovulation is delayed because there's an underlying factor that is impairing that connection you're you know if we take it to the level of what's happening hormonally in order to ovulate your ovaries have to be responding to the messages that your pituitary is sending that's why we measure the fsh level follicle stimulating hormone so at the beginning of the cycle sorry for the science lesson but at the beginning of the, the cycle your pituitary sends out fsh follicle stimulating hormone and that the ovaries have to respond to that and start developing follicles. And that is what ultimately causes you to ovulate. In the example of PCOS, the FSH is happening, but the ovaries are not responding, often because there's you know, this inflammatory issue going on in the background, creating a situation where your body is kind of saying, this isn't a good time. Like, so this is basically what's happening, right? So, or if anyone who has charted their cycles, you know, any woman who's listening to this, who's cycled naturally for a period of time will know that they've had at least one cycle where it, it was off. And if you travel, if you are sick, if, you know, something happens in your family or whatever, your body is receptive to those things. So I guess what I'm saying is that the challenge for women whose cycles are irregular isn't that fertility awareness will be more or less effective, but it's that you'll likely have more days that you have to consider fertile there's a longer window of time where you can't have unprotected sex. Because if you don't ovulate until day 30, you probably had multiple patches of cervical fluid or many days that you saw fluid or whatever. So when you're charting your cycle, there's going to be a lot of days where you have to consider yourself fertile. So that's one of the challenges, um, kind of in real talk of, of what happens. Um, but there's a good, like, there's kind of good things that come out of that. One, you kind of put down the myth that you're fertile every day. You stop trying to predict ovulation and you kind of understand more how your body works. But when you actually see repeatedly that your cycles are not normal, it enforces that there's something wrong. <laughs> 
And just the act of tracking by itself without making any changes isn't likely to change anything, right? But the act of tracking means that you are now aware of this. Very few women can actually look and see that there's a problem cycle after cycle and not do anything about it. So I feel like tracking really does prompt you and it provides you with actual evidence now. You have evidence that there's something wrong. And once you start learning more about the condition, once you start addressing whether it's nutrient deficiencies, dietary stuff, exercise, like whatever the issue is for you, and you start to see that the cycle actually adjusts and responds to what you do, there's nothing more empowering than women starting to understand like, wow, I thought this was all out of my control. I thought the pill was the only thing that could work. But I've been making these dietary changes for the past three months, and I've seen a huge shift in my cycles. So I feel like that is what happens. That's the process. Women come to fertility awareness for birth control, for pregnancy, like the very practical stuff. But what happens is this incredible kind of awakening to this very real connection between our cycles and our body and this empowerment of like, wow, I actually have a lot more control over my health and my fertility than I ever thought I did. No one ever told me that I could change my cycle like this. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. <laughs> yes, it really is empowering to learn about ourselves and to and I know that when I started discovering for myself and I just keep using myself as, as an example because I this has been really powerful in my own life when I started learning that I didn't ovulate until typically for me it was like days 21 through 23 kind of on average which is much later than that day 14 that we're typically told because my cycles were so much longer but actually learning that oh my gosh i do actually have some control over this and some deeper knowledge in my body i think it really can provide so much of that empowerment so something that you started touching on that i wanted to dig into a little bit more especially kind of Along the lines of maintaining a healthy cycle, whatever that looks like for us, um, and a little bit, you know, in terms of fertility, can you share maybe some of some strategies that you find to be really helpful in terms of kind of the food and lifestyle side of things? I know that's a really big question, but wherever you want to take that, because I know that we're often, or at least I think that for a long time, I thought that my food and life cycle, life cycle, lifestyle was, you know, very much for my overall health. And, and I'm using overall health in quotations for my overall health, for my weight, for, you know, those type of things. But I didn't really know about it as it related to my actual cycle. And now that we know that your cycle is your fifth vital sign, it's incredibly important to your overall health as a woman. Are there some really important strategies when it comes to food and life cycle and maintaining a healthy cycle? Yeah. I mean, I, I would never s sit here and say that there's one magical, perfect way of eating that is going to work for everybody because that's just not a thing. Um, the great thing about cycle charting is that, you know, if you just, if you start charting your cycles, let's say, let's give an ex a hypothetical woman, when she starts uh, charting her cycles, what happens is within the first, you know, two to three cycles, I say she's establishing a baseline. So she's starting to see where her cycles actually lie. Now, if you kind of go through the cycle the way that we have in this conversation and you start to understand, okay, there's an, a length that's normal. There's a length of period and quality that's normal. There's a length of mucus pattern that's normal. You know, ovulation, in order to, to have a cycle that's between 24 and 35 uh, days, the ovulation has to take place somewhere between typically day 10 and 23. So um, like there's parameters for this. And then the second half of the cycle in a healthy cycle has to be about 12 to 14 days. So when you understand that it's not just about the length, 
or the period. It's about all these different factors of like five of them, <laughs> six, <laughs> and we put them together. Then we can start to say, okay, you know, let's look at the cycle. Let's break it down. You know, is it normal? And if you're tracking your temperature, there's another one because, you know, is your temperature normal? Um, so I think in order to answer the question kind of generally of like, is there a way to eat to support menstrual health? There's a few things we have to understand. So the first thing we have to understand is where, how hormones are made. So um, our hormones that we need to produce in sufficient amounts to have healthy cycles, including estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, vitamin D, those are um, the precursor for all of those hormones is cholesterol. So, <laughs> so we actually make those hormones from cholesterol. So one of the things that I find is that because of the, the culture and the society that we live in, you know, there was a lot of effort, I suppose, in the 80s and 90s to convince everybody that that was bad for us. And so a lot of women um, think it's really healthy to eat like zero fat yogurt and really kind of are afraid to eat fat because of the myth that fat makes us fat. Um, when you're looking at the body from not the perspective of weight, but from like, okay, so how do I support hormonal health? If you have the question of like, my cycles are off, how do I, you know, improve my cycles? That's one of the kind of pieces of information that can be really helpful uh, in order to make hormones like if we wanted to support our body in doing that, we would have to actually consume fat. And cholesterol is only found in animal fat. So if so, that's uh, like I, I don't need to get into all the controversy, but I think we have to kind of start looking at our bodies from a perspective of health and like literally like what are the building blocks to hormones. <laughs> so that's like one thing to understand. Um, and I would say that a lot of us underestimate the impact of some of the very simple basic factors. Uh, for example, um, for any woman who's tracking their cycle or trying to conceive one of, or who's recently come off birth control, um, it's really common for a woman to come off birth control and for that first, say, um, you know, six to 12 month period for the cycles to be off. There's what I call a post pill transition phase. And one of the uh, most common ways that that shows up is either cycles that are uh, irregular or um, a luteal phase that's too short. So luteal phase is a word to describe the second half of your cycle, the number of days between ovulation and your next period. And as I mentioned, 12 to 14 days, so about two weeks is what is normal. Many women come off the pill and let's say they're, you know, it's like seven days for the first couple of cycles or eight days, meaning it's too short. And if you want to have a baby, the, that phase has to be at least like 11 days, uh, 10 maybe, but it has to be at least 11 days. Uh, because what happens is if it's too short, you're already getting your period when the egg is trying to implant. So this is an example. So a lot of women know that this phase, when you have a short luteal phase, or when you have issues with that second half of the cycle, that it's related to progesterone deficiency or what's called the luteal phase defect. So a lot of women will be like, okay, what do I do? And think there's like a magical supplement that's going to help everything be better. I think we've all been trained by the medical system to think like, if I have this problem, there has to be a supplement that I can take. Um, if you want to support your hormonal health, one of the first things you can do before you reach for supplements is ensure you're getting enough sleep. So, and, and when you go to sleep matters too. So if you can go to bed before 10 or 11, that's like even better. If you can get, you know, a minimum of seven hours of sleep. And then of course we all have individual differences beyond that. Um, that's like a great first step. You can take it even further by sleeping in the dark. So what many of us don't know, I mean, a lot of us know that if you drink coffee at like 10 p.m., it's probably going to interfere with your sleep. But did you know that if you're looking at your laptop 
or your television or your phone at 10 p.m., it has the same effect on your hormones as coffee. (laughs) Um, And also, if you're sleeping all night and your room isn't dark because you've got like a street light outside the window or you've got your TV on all night or whatever, yeah, you can't make sufficient melatonin, which then affects your progesterone production, all these hormones, when you have light exposure at night. So um, any if, if there are any of my own clients listening to this podcast right now, they're all laughing because I'm always talking about sleep and how important it is because I feel like we always want to jump like the cart before the horse thing. We don't want to address these basic things because it's so much easier to take a supplement than it is to sort out our own habits. <laughs> so um, that would be the first thing I would say. Literally like go to bed before 10 or 11 if you can. Um, get enough sleep about 78 hours and sleep in the dark. Um, for lifestyle. Uh, When it comes to exercise, exercise is great. We all need to be getting exercise. When you're charting your cycle, however, you will get real-time information as to whether or not you're exercising too much or too little, or even if you are not consuming enough food to account for the exercise that you've had. So for example, we were just talking about the luteal phase and like what happens if it's too short. Sleeping in the dark for some women can really help to support progesterone production and they might get some relief of those issues just by doing that. Um, If a woman is exercising like seven days a week, (laughs) five days a week, really hard, but she's not necessarily eating enough food to compensate for that, that can show up in the luteal phase as well. So we want to make sure that um, first thing, make sure you're eating enough food, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, like you're actually consuming enough food. Um, And then I would say that for example, in the case, we keep going back to the example of your cycles that were irregular and abnormal. I think that we underestimate the effect of um, like sugar, um, processed sugars, uh, high glycemic carbohydrates. So I'm not st- standing here saying that there's one way that everybody should eat. But in terms of general information about the cycle, um, a lot of women have issues with cycle irregularities. A lot of women have issues with inflammatory conditions. A lot of women have period pain. A lot of women have period pain. And um, so looking at the processed foods, like the garbage, like <laughs> all the sugar, all the stuff, um, learning about the difference between high and low glycemic carbohydrates and, and starting to look at our macronutrient ratios, making sure we're getting enough protein making sure we're getting enough fat and carbohydrates. So everything you eat is one of those three macronutrients. That's it. Everything in your mouth is either protein, fat, or carbohydrates or a combination. And so actually getting enough protein, getting enough fat, like in the healthy fat category, you know, looking at your carbohydrate intake and opting for lower glycemic, higher nutrient, you know, vegetables and all that kind of stuff. Not to say that you're excluding anything, but just that you're looking at those ratios and not like eating 80% white flour or whatever. So those are some of the basic things that we can start to look at. A lot of women don't get enough protein. A lot of women don't get enough fat. A lot of women need tons of carbs. A lot of us start our day with like oatmeal and bananas. And we don't realize that oatmeal and bananas, there's nothing wrong with oatmeal and bananas, but if that's, if you have all carbs and no protein and fat, it's not about like weight. What happens is you push up your blood sugar, this causes you to be hungry. Anyone who has oatmeal and banana is hungry 10 minutes later. So um, there's ways for us to organize our, our meals in a more balanced way that supports hormone health, which then in turn supports menstrual cycle health. Um, and then also by addressing some of those factors, I mean, I could go on about diet for a really long time, but anyone who experiences period pain, for example, um, looking at uh, 
so the, the, the lowering, like the high glycemic carb, like the crap, basically the processed stuff, looking at eating more like green vegetables and all that kind of stuff, reducing inflammation, looking at, you know, fish, eating fish, eating fish, oil, like looking at ways to balance the, um, the inflammatory factors. Uh, I'll kind of leave it there, but that's just like a couple things to think about from a basic standpoint of what we can do to support our hormonal health. Oh my gosh. So good. And I am so convicted about the sleep health. (laughs) My husband actually like tapped my shoulder last night as I was on my phone. I said I was going to bed and I was browsing Instagram late at night last night. I got caught and he was like, didn't you want to go to sleep before 1030, which is usually my goal is if I get to sleep before 1030, I get a good because I wake up at 530. So I have to, I don't need as much sleep as some people like my husband needs much more sleep than I do, but I need a solid seven hours or my hormones don't love it. My, my brain function doesn't love it. So I need that. So I need to be asleep by 1030 because that's just what works for me and, and my body. So he, he tapped me on the shoulder and I was like, you know, of course I was a little annoyed that he was like telling me what to do, but he was right. He was right that I needed to go to sleep. I needed to not be looking at my phone. And that's one of those changes I've tried to make is not looking at my phone before bed because I do notice it's a lot harder for me to fall asleep. Something I've, I've learned when it comes to sleep health, and it seems so silly, but we think that when we go to bed, like when we actually go and lie down in our bed, that's when we're sleeping. But if it takes us a half an hour or whatever to fall asleep, we're not actually sleeping (laughs) until, you know, obviously when we're falling asleep and that's when our sleep cycles start. And so I'm really glad you brought that up because it does make such a huge difference in our overall health and especially our, our hormone health. And that was something that I know that I had to work on sort of my sleep hygiene and, you know, just share a hack about that. Yeah, totally. Because the thing is that um, I like to live in the real world. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it would be perfect if we all just shut down all our devices at 7 p.m. and then like meditated and did yoga until bedtime. But most of us don't do that. So you, we, I feel like we can shoot for the ideal, but we have to have uh, ways to manage. So, yeah. you know, the listeners won't be able to see it, but I'm going to show you one of my hacks. So mm-hmm. what I just did is I turned my cell phone screen red. So I have an iPhone and you can do that. <laughs> um, you can Google how to do that. Um, but anyone's listening. I guess what I'm saying is like when you're looking at your screen, it's important to know that when you're staring at the screen at 10 o'clock, it acts like coffee. And what the research tells you, it's interesting because there's studies about this. If you stare at the screen, what happens is you end up overall, like right before bed, you end up overall getting less sleep because it takes you longer to get to sleep because the screen stimulates your cortisol production. Have you ever been kind of living your life, you know, at, at nighttime and you start to feel tired? It's, it's, I feel like it's like a haze that comes over you. Like you start to feel the tired. That is your melatonin rising mm. at the appropriate time. And then have you ever like opened up your cell phone and noticed that that haze kind of goes away? Or have you ever had in the morning where you wake up and the room is dark? I know my room is pretty dark. And then like someone opens the window and it's like horrible, but you can like feel obviously the tiredness move from your body. So we could actually feel this happening, but we don't necessarily talk about it. We're not necessarily aware of it. If you, there's a lot of apps. There's, I have this great app on my computer. It's called app.lux and I'm not like advertising. It was free. Like I'm not part of their company, but it's an example of something. There's like night shift and stuff on, you know, but there's certain things you can do to make your screen more orange, 
um, and that filters out some of the blue light. And what you find, what I found is because I'm not perfect. So sometimes I'm answering an email at 1030 when I should be in my bed. But what I found is that when my screen, when I've taken care of some of those things, that I still like, it's probably still not good, but you kind of feel the tired still. It doesn't fully disrupt that. So just a couple hacks for your listeners about that whole sleep thing. Yes. I like that a lot. And I need to do that. I need to, just for those nights that it needs to be an automatic thing, just for those nights where I do catch myself on Instagram a little bit later, you know, answering a quick email or something like that, that would be good. Cause it is, it is so important. And I love that all of the things that you mentioned are really simple ways that we can approach balancing our hormones through, you know, a little bit of just balancing our food and balancing our sleep and it's nothing crazy. And yes, there are definitely hormonal conditions where you might need to dig a little bit deeper and go a little bit further and work with a practitioner to get things balanced. But overall, there's a lot of really, really simple things we can do. And I love that so much. So mm-hmm. one, one thing really quick that you mentioned that I, I hadn't planned on asking you, but I want to bring up because you mentioned it and I think it's important. And it's not something I don't think I've talked about on the podcast yet. And that is period pain. So period pain, is it normal to have a crazy, painful, and terrible week before your period? Uh, Well, I mean, I would say that there's a a huge difference between what's common, what a lot of people experience in this crazy world that's fully polluted and we've got all these issues. So what's common is not the same as what we could consider normal and what we could consider healthy. So yeah, it's pretty common. A lot of women get period pain a lot it's a huge percentage of women that experience period pain. Uh, but is it normal? Is it healthy? So I just want you to ponder for everyone who's listening, you know, outside of childbirth, can you think of any scenario where pain, like moderate to severe period pain, I've had women describe it to me like some, like, like some guy reached into their abdomen and started wrenching their like their uterus back and forth like wet laundry I had this one woman say it was like she was being like set on fire while being stabbed so okay and I will say that I used to have horrific period pain and um I have now I have two children now (laughs) I had them both like in our house so there was no like epidural so I felt it what I'm saying is that I my period pain was worse than the Mm -hmm. first half of labor. Okay. So just to put into context, period pain is horrific. Um, It can be not every woman experiences like horrific period pain, but like period pain can be really, really severe. So can you think of any scenario outside of childbirth where we actually think pain is normal and totally okay? So outside of childbirth, um, any pain, we are know that it's a sign of tissue damage. It's a sign of um, inflammation. And if a man, like pick, picture a man in your life, your favorite man, um, if he had pain in his penis that felt like someone was stabbing it like every month, our world wouldn't be like, yeah, that's cool. Just go take an Advil. So I feel like we have to put this into co- uh, context. So for whatever reason, we've been sold this lie that this is normal. And um, I'm going to go so far to say like it's in the Bible, women were punished with painful childbirth. Like, so come on. And I, I, I know that that's controversial, but is it? It's like literally in, in the Bible. And so there's a, a cultural history of this idea that 
this is a part of our natural lot in life as women. Um, so that first of all, we have to like throw away that garbage and start to understand that, no, like we deserve to be in healthy bodies. We deserve to be, um, to, to be free from pain and it is actually possible. Um, the second thing we have to understand is that pain is a sign of inflammation, tissue damage, and is a sign that something is happening. So, um, and the only way to understand that is to really go into and understand how periods work. So, of course, I was curious about it. And when you research how periods actually work. So, when you have your period, it is a natural um, uh, process that does involve inflammation and tissue damage. So in order for you to shed your lining, you produce these lipids called prostaglandins that cause smooth muscle contractions. And that needs to happen in order for you to empty your blood, in order for this blood to be released. And the tissue dies, and so it has to be shed. And so what happens is that in women with moderate to severe period pain, when they do scientific research and measure their prostaglandin levels, the levels have been found to be upwards of four times higher in women who experience period pain versus women who do not. So there you have it, actual scientific evidence that women who <laughs> experience moderate to severe period pain have specific markers of inflammation in greater amounts. And what that means with that knowledge, and I always explain this to my clients because no one has ever said, like no one ever says stuff like this. It's because it's like we just expect periods to be horrible. So if you understand it from a scientific perspective and you understand that women who experience pain have greater levels of inflammation, um, and also just to put out there that a large percentage, well, a fairly decent percentage of women who have moderate to severe pain um, at some point receive a diagnosis of endometriosis. Endometriosis is a debilitating condition. Um, not every woman who has endometriosis has severe pain, but many do. And it, it's associated with infertility. And so there's a variety of issues that are associated with this condition. And so again, a sign of a problem that we should be aware of, right? Um, so if we understand that that's what's happening, then we can start addressing the underlying fundamental issue. So when we were talking about diet and I was talking about inflammation, so understanding, okay, so where does inflammation, like what, what could, if, if I look at my diet, like where, what foods are inflammatory, like what can be contributing to that? So simple sugars, high glycemic carbohydrates, all the like cookies and cakes and whatever. It doesn't mean never eat it. It means be aware that there it's related to, you know, inflammation. Um, oil. So we can talk about, I talked about, you know, animal fat and all that, but oils. So industrial seed oils is what I call, like we call vegetable oils. So those oils are highly inflammatory. They have a um, higher level of omega-6 compared to omega-3. In the body, ideally, we'd have one-to-one. -one, but based on the kind of standard American diet, most people have way more omega-6 exposure than omega-3, and that leads to inflammation. So again, understanding sources of those omega-3 um, fatty acids, getting rid of margarine and vegetable oil slash industrial seed oils, looking at processed foods because that's what they're contained with understanding that um, when you're looking to buy like meat uh, and dairy products. So I'm not anti-meat and I'm not anti-dairy products. Understanding the difference between conventional meat that eats uh, genetically modified corn and soy. So they do studies, meat, uh, animals that eat conventional corn and soy are, well, the genetically modified corn and soy contain higher degree of pesticides because 
the only reason for genetic modification is to create plants that you can spray with chemicals that don't die. Um, if, if you didn't know that, like that's a, that's a real thing. So they make these plants that are resistant to pesticides uh, with the genetic modification. So you can spray and spray and spray and then the plants don't die. And so the weeds die, but the plants don't die. So then when you're eating foods that are processed with that, you have a high level of pesticides, which disrupts your endocrine system. Like, so, you, right, so, so there's a source of problems right there. But the actual corn and soy, the meat that comes from those are highly inflammatory. So looking for grass-fed meat, if you can, it doesn't have to be organic, but cows that eat grass on the pasture, the meat tends to be less um, problematic. Dairy is the same. Um, the, the, the milk that comes from cows that eat the corn, the soy, high, higher inflammation, and then also the pesticide issue. Um, so like starting to be aware of sources of inflammation, a lot of, and, and there's other issues with, with dairy. So there's a reason why certain kids do better on goat dairy versus cow dairy, because the goat dairy has um, a protein called A2 versus the tip, like the conventional dairy that has a protein called A1. So there's like different ways. A lot of women find that if they get rid of dairy, uh, it really helps them to reduce their pain. Is it the dairy itself? No, it's the way that we process it. And it's also the, the proteins in the dairy. Um, some women do better on A2 milk. And so they switch to goat milk and they're okay. So there's more to the story is what I'm saying to you, basically. And if we start to understand the underlying process and start to understand the factors that contribute to this inflammatory issue that causes pain, then we can really start to do something about it. So step one is like reduce some of those inflammatory factors. We didn't even talk about xenoestrogens, the chemicals, all of the cleaning supplies, all of the scented products, all of those chemicals that contain um, or products that contain chemicals that mimic estrogen in the body, all that stuff really throws off our hormones. It can significantly contribute to period pain. It's even in menstrual products. <laughs> so some women find some relief by switching to organic. Um, it's a big conversation. But also know that there are certain nutrients that also support the lowering of um, inflammatory factors. So if I, it's too much to talk about in the podcast today, but I guess if I want to leave the listeners with something, if you are listening to this episode and you have period pain, I want you to know that there's a, an actual like reason for the pain. It's not in your head and it's not normal. Um, it's a sign of inflammation and it's because of the way we live our lives essentially and, and we don't know. Um, there's ways to reduce those inflammatory factors in our lifestyle and dietary habits. And there are also specific nutrients like zinc, magnesium, fish oil, turmeric, like there's all, um, even CBD oil, like there's a lot of specific things that are known to be anti-inflammatory, have been studied in a scientific manner, have been shown to reduce those prostaglandins, so reducing the actual inflammatory factors so that you can live your life without pain all the time. <laughs> Oh my gosh, so much good information here. I'm you can see me. I'm like a bobblehead doll nodding along with all of this cuz I've seen the impact of inflammation on my own life and you know my friends and clients I've worked with just those simple steps to reduce inflammation in so many areas, but I love that you're like this is very common, but it doesn't have to be normal. And I think what all of this comes back to is the awareness of the importance of our cycle, which I know is, you know, is what you you talk so much of, so deeply about and so passionately about. And it's that understanding of what's normal, what isn't, and being and having that awareness so that we can recognize when there are issues and getting to the root cause of them rather than, you know, just kind of band-aiding that with with the pills. So or other, you know, or other things. There are there are solutions and there are options for women other than just that. So 
Oh my gosh. So good. I could keep talking to you for another hour, I'm sure. (laughs) But this is so, so great. And I'm sure you're helping so many women just in this one podcast episode. And um, thankfully you have a podcast yourself and you have the book, which I am like touching right now next to me. I just banged my hand on it so they can probably hear me, (laughs) but it is so great. And I told you I'm only a few chapters in um, myself, but I will definitely be digging in just, you know, glancing through. There's so much information in there. So could you just share a little bit about who your new book is for and what they'll learn from it and then where they can find you if they want to connect with you other than, you know, I just mentioned your podcast and your book. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. So the book is The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. And I mean, I wrote the book because uh, I've been sharing this information for a long time, as you know, and the, the number one response, first of all, like, why didn't anybody tell me this? But it's everyone needs to know the stuff. So really, the book is for, you know, if, if you are interested in what we talked about today, we talked about the menstrual cycle, what's normal, what's not, we talked about fertility awareness, how it works, we just talked about period pain, all of that, and so much more is in the book. So it's really about optimizing your hormone health. I feel like women gravitate to this information. They self-select. I would never say that every woman needs to chart their cycles because that's not a thing. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But women who gravitate to this love it and they're so excited about it and they're so interested in it. And so this is is just, it's what it is. So it's kind of like, you know if it's for you <laughs> by listening to this episode. Um, so the book is available on Amazon. It is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. And of course, the podcast, Fertility Friday, if you type Fertility Friday in your favorite podcast player. Um, we're over 300 episodes now. So lots and lots of information about charting and all of that. Um, and I'm also on Instagram at Fertility Friday, um, posting some interesting inflammatory comments over there. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. So I know that you have to go, but I have three fun little rapid fire questions. If you wouldn't mind answering really quick before we hop off. Sure. So because I love talking about food in a way that is fun and joyful, I love to ask, what is your favorite thing to cook? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer. I cook every single day for my So um, I don't, I don't know. Um, just to be silly, tongue in cheek, I'll say I like cooking liver pate. My kids really like it. And I talk about liver in the book. So I'll say liver pate for today. I love that. I actually had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who we also mentioned liver and we were talking about liver. So that's so funny. I have met a few liver pates I enjoy and a lot I haven't. So <laughs> do you have a recipe for that, for the one you use? Um, I need to actually publish and post it, but the secret ingredient is like lots of butter, if you can tolerate dairy, and cream, Mm. fresh cream, along with great seasoning. Sounds so good. Sounds way better when you say cream and butter along with the liver. (laughs) So then what is your favorite thing to order if you go out to eat when we can go out to eat um, or have someone else cook for you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Trying to think, what's my favorite thing to order? I, I mean, I like ordering steak, like the medium rare, because I still have to, like, I'm not a master at cooking steak, more so because I just have never really done it, like the restaurant way. So I guess I would say that. I've heard that answer a few times because a really good steak is awesome and hard <laughs> to come by, I think. <laughs> So my last question here on the podcast, I love sharing a balanced approach to food, wellness, and life. So I love to ask my guests, what does your beautiful balance mean to you? My beautiful balance 
means tuning in to my intuition, really paying attention to the messages that my body is sending that, um, and really kind of trusting that inner knowing of what is right and what is not over what some doctor or person tells me. Oh my gosh. So good. And what a perfect way, what a perfect way to end things. Thank you so, so much, Lisa, for coming on and sharing this information with my listeners. I know this is going to be so helpful and mind blowing for a lot of, for a lot of women. So I appreciate you and the work you do very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. If you loved it, would you take a screenshot and share it with a friend over on Instagram and tag me in it? It helps me so much to know what you love and are taking away from each episode. If you really loved it, would you hop over to iTunes and give me a star rating and review? Every rating and review helps this podcast be seen and heard by more women who need to hear the message of balance and wellness without deprivation. It's the best free gift you could give me. And as a reminder, the information and opinions on this podcast are meant for education and inspiration only and are not to be taken as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with a trusted practitioner before making any changes. Have a beautiful day, friend, and I'll see you in the next episode.